this is going to be a fairly quick and rapid one. I've had a double sweet coffee this morning because I was told about 15 minutes. So when you've got a 45 minute message and you've got 15 minutes, you know what you've got to do, don't you? Right? Just got to really get that into it and really go for it. So no time for anything. No, that's not true. Um, so I, I wanted to talk about, um, Jesus said fear not quite a lot. And I want to talk just a little bit about fear and I guess the human con condition. And this is um, almost like a taster to a bigger kind of teaching series I'd like to do at some stage, which is around fear and anxiety and insecurity and whatever, because um, I know about all of those. Um, I'm really experienced. Um, in fact, I think I was anxious before I was even born. That's how experienced I am. But uh, Jesus said, fear not. In fact, fear not, or something similar to that, like um, do not be afraid, is recorded over 365 times in Scripture, which work it out as at least one a day that um, God is wanting to say to us, fear not, don't be afraid. And yet if there's one thing that I see that is typical of the human condition and my condition is the things that I'm anxious about, nervous about, or simply afraid of. The tragedy in that is that it seems to be like a default position. And when I think back over my life, I'm 65. I know that's a surprise because I look amazing. But um, in 65 years, I would say about 95% of the p things that I've been anxious and frightened of and worried about have never eventuated or they've not been anywhere near as bad as I imagined. Some things and things I've said and things I've done, I, I've recalled saying to my wife as a younger man, they're going to crucify, crucify me for this at the next meeting and etc. And sometimes they say, no, nah, whatever, there's nothing. And I worry myself sick over these things because I'm frightened of the outcomes. My default position of fear is that I have an imposter syndrome and that one day everyone will find out that I'm actually not what I appear to be and it's all talk and it's all fake and I don't actually live up to it and I'm a steaming hypocrite and that I'll get found out and exposed and shamed out of town. Um, which is why I, I guess I preach the way I do. I try and preach the same as if I was talking to you one-on-one. -on -one. I don't want you to think there's a mic who stands in the pulpit and there's a mic who you can come around home and have a beer or a coffee with and he's a different guy. It's easier to just be yourself and not get caught out. Now and again, it means I upset people or offend people from the front. Well, that's actually better than pretending to be something that you're not. Because I'd hate someone to come around to my home and think, wow, he is so different at home than he is at church. Um, and that's my fear, is being exposed. So you say, okay, well, expose yourself. So there's nothing for them to kind of discover. So um, that makes some pastors of churches very nervous when they invite me to preach because who knows what I'm going to do. But today, the senior pastor is not here. Oh, that sounds like him. So Jesus said, fear not, in a lot of ways, and all through scripture, 365 times. There was an author, uh, he's an American Christian pastor, an author, um, he died in the 60s, I think. His name was A.W. Tozer. Have you ever heard of Tozer? And Tozer, um, he used to say, in fact, he said in this particular book, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the whole church. We move towards our mental image of God. And you'll be wondering where that's going. 
he also said all also um the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of god if you call church a her the corporate idea of of god if we took everyone's opinions and summed them all up you might be surprised at the picture we get what he meant was by the secret law of the soul what he was meaning was we tend to become like the image of god that we carry in our minds and hearts we become like the god that we focus on or the god that we see even if it's a misconception or the perception's wrong or whatever we do tend to become like the image that we focus on um, my dad used to say to me you become like those you hang around with the most that's why i was constantly getting arrested and, and in all sorts of trouble with the law as a young fella it wasn't my fault it was all the people i hung around with The image of God we carry in our minds and heart, we become like who we look at or who we behold. Tozer also went on and said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God and his nature and his acts and his ways is what you tend to gravitate towards and become like yourself which is kind of nice in some ways because we are made in the image of God and we want to be like him. But what if some of our ideas or thoughts or concepts are not correct? Or what if certain attributes of God's, uh, of God we have exaggerated or we focus totally on a certain aspect of God at the expense of others? What kind of image do we carry? Because that's what we become. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples. Many years ago when I was a new Christian, um, and I was sort of looking for a, a home, I guess, and a spiritual home, and I was looking for um, a cell group or a church where I felt I could belong. I uh, was converted to Christianity at 20. I'd come out of a drug scene and, and sort of um, nefarious dealings in life. And um, when I was looking for a church or a house group, this old guy said to me once, here's the rule of thumb that I use much law little love much love little law and he said use that whether you're going to a cell group or you're going to a church or you're talking to individual people who claim to be believers inside yourself ask yourself am i seeing much love very little law and regulations and must do must not or am i seeing a lot of love and very little law and he said both extremes can be a problem but if you're going to lean one way or the other make your default love not law and um really interesting because way back in the garden of eden um however long that really was ago um the disease of sin and corruption and the disease of deception infiltrated humanity with adam and eve and it actually way back then skewed our image of the real god right from then people got some false ideas and false perceptions about who God is otherwise why would Eve and then Adam be subject to a suggestion by a serpent I mean I think it's kind of weird that there was a talking snake to start with that would raise my suspicions but maybe things were different then maybe all animals talked I don't know like the C.S. Lewis stories of Narnia I don't know but that would have raised my suspicions but right from then there was this thing that uh, skewed our image of the true God um, we no longer saw God as just the, the source of our lives and we no longer saw him as the sustainer or the supplier of everything we need but we started to see God through these distorted lenses 
And the way we've started to see God was that God wants his pound of flesh. If you do something wrong, there's, there's a day where you've got to pay. And there's a truth in that, but it rocketed all of creation towards disaster, where people ended up with this image of God that is so skewed that we often think of God as intimidating. Sometimes we think of him, as, of him being furiously angry with people. Sometimes we feel like he's a threatening, impatient God. Sometimes we feel he's so distant and far removed that he's not even connected with what's going on in my life, that he's just out there kind of clinically observing his little experiment on this aquarium called Earth. And our souls, because of some of these things, default to getting filled up with fears. Fears about all kinds of things. And I'd like to suggest there are some real fears in the world. Uh, we lived in New Guinea where there were some really nasty steaks, snakes, not steaks. I love steaks, but <laughs> don't like snake steaks, particularly when it's still moving. But um, the reality is there are some fears which it's smart to be fearful of. It's a smart thing to be fearful of poisonous snakes and don't drag them around by the tail when they're alive. That's smart. But there's a lot of fears that are irrational, unreasonable, and just downright nasty that infiltrates us as individuals and as a church and as a community. Our souls naturally kind of seem to default now because of the fall in the garden towards this kind of fear so that many times we want to run like Adam and Eve and cover our shame with fig leaves. We want to try and fix it ourselves. One, because we're now afraid of the anger or the wrath of God because I've done a bad, bad thing. But also we think that maybe we can fix it ourselves or I can cover it or I can hide it from other people or something because I'm too scared to just face up to it or too scared to go to God with it. Think in the Garden of Eden, whether you consider that it was a true story or some kind of um, you know, uh, parable to make a point, whichever way you sit, what do you think would have happened to Adam Eve and what do you think would have happened to humanity and creation if when Eve had sinned and then Adam followed her example if they had instead gone running to God and say we don't actually really know what we've done we don't know the implications or anything else but we have actually done something that you told us not to do we are so sorry what might have happened I can't imagine if I understand God properly he would have forgiven them and he wouldn't have held it against them. But instead, they ran off and they hid from God because fear had become their default position through the skewed lens that the, the devil or the talking snake kind of initiated in their lives. And they ran and hid. And then they tried to cover their own shame and their own nakedness with their own efforts. Ma'am, don't we do that? Woohoo! And then God goes looking for them and says, Adam and Eve, where are you? You know, that's actually, in the middle of a tragedy, that's actually meant to be humour. Do you think God didn't know where they were for a moment? Do you think he didn't know what they did? Not at all. And so right from the Garden of Eden. And often the early impressions I've found, for me anyway, of our father or a significant older male figure shapes the lenses we see God through. And that can be for good or for bad. It can be for peace, comfort, support, or it can be for fear. Uh, my father was a, um, a very angry man a lot of the time um, when I was a young fellow and when I was a little child, and um, you just never knew when he was just going to explode. You know, 
we could be playing like kids are and clowning around and probably being a, a real pain. Um, and he'd just be sitting there, sitting there, and you couldn't see that the volcano was building up pressure. Yeah. And then he would suddenly just let rip and he may throw things at you or he may just explode in very loud, angry voices and, you know, and it could be quite violent. So my dad and my mum got saved late in their lives, which I'm really pleased about, but the reality was I still carried through some of that stuff so that this thing that plays on me is I think that at the end of the day, God's let me away with some things or God is tolerating some things in my life, not necessarily winking at them, but kind of letting it go. But one day he's going to explode and he's going to turn me into a little grease spot under his heel in the ground and that's the end of me and I'll be exposed. That's my default position. Even now that I know better and I live better, I have to constantly coach myself because we have these skewed kind of ideas about God. And this kind of soul garden that Tozer talks about of fear and shame, it produces insecurity, it produces pain, and worst of all, it produces coping mechanisms. Rather than dealing with our stuff and the things that we kind of get all angsty about or we're really ashamed of or anything else, instead of dealing with our stuff, we run and hide from God in the bush and we put on our fig leaves so that nobody knows that I'm naked and that nobody can see that I'm ashamed, even if I feel it, they can't see it. And this is a skewed image that a lot of us carry in our relationship with God. We think, if I'm really, 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 really fortunate and don't sin too badly before I die, God might say, well, he won't say, well done, good and faithful servant, I'm not that good, but he might say, oh, close enough, you made it, come on in. Don't we sometimes live like that? Some people say, oh, once saved, always saved. And when I was sincere and made a commitment to Christ, I can do what I like afterwards and I'm always going to get into heaven. Other people say, oh, no, no, no. If you make a commitment, you've got to keep the commitment up. And if you sin one time too many, you might have just tipped the balance and you won't find out till judgment day. What a terrible way to live, people. What a frightening way to live thinking, I wonder if I'm going to actually make it. What does that say about the sacrifice of Christ? And bigger than that, what does that say about our skewed thinking about the love and the forgiveness and the grace and the assistance and the support and the ownership of God? It says a lot. But my default position still flicks back there so quickly, particularly if I do something stupid, which is pretty much daily, which is why the Bible says, fear not or don't be afraid at least 365 times. It's trying to tell me, Mike, Will you ever get it through your head? You and me are doing okay. You're not perfect, but you and me are fine. But if our image of God starts aligning more with the vision that Jesus came to earth to present to humanity, our souls start filling up with his love and his approval. I mean, more than anything else, I think... I just want God to say he approves of me. I know he loves me. God is love. He can't help himself. It's not just part of his being. It is who he is. God is love. It's not just an attribute, right? But everything in me, perhaps because of my upbringing and things, I just want God to approve of me. But it's not right for me to be fearful that I will miss out on his approval. Desperately seek his approval, of course. But not because I think my soul is at stake just because he's such a good father and I want to make him happy. But even when I'm stupid and I'm a bad son, 
he still approves of me and loves me. He's not going to say, Mike, that was one sin too many this week. Sorry, you missed out. Or you've got to do 10 good things to counter the one bad thing you did. Because I would be living in fear all the time that I have tipped the balance. And that is not the nature of the love of God that I understand. And it's only when we really start to see God as a loving father. And I say again, as portrayed by Christ when he come to visit humanity. Old Testament God, I'm sorry, people got it wrong. And they still had skewed images of God that he was wrathful and vengeful. And if you didn't obey exactly this, that and the other, you were going to turn into a grief spot. And I'm not going to argue the doctrine of Old Testament, but I would like to suggest a major reason that Jesus came and incarnated on the earth and lived as a human being was one to provide a way for us to be reconciled fully with God through his sacrifice but it was also to show us as best he could, this is the nature of my father. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. And then you ask yourself, when Jesus lived on the earth and how he treated people, is that different than the picture you have of the Old Testament God? And that's because Jesus is saying, you know what? You've got some skewed thinking. You're still living with laws and regulations and fears, which I never wanted to start with. You're the guys who asked for that in the wilderness when Moses went up the mountain. You asked for the rules and laws and said, we'll promise we'll obey all of them. And they didn't. But Jesus said, oh, for goodness sake, I have to be incarnated and come to earth and live as a human being and show you what part of the nature of God you have skewed how you're focused on the wrong things, and now, as New Testament Christians, we should be absolutely free to live in the love and the development and the maturing and the nurture and the safety of God. But sometimes we get ourselves into this Old Testament thinking as well, that if I don't do this, he's going to do that, or I'm living hoping that I kind of make it on the final day, etc., etc. And we live in this weird kind of thing because we're still skewed often. Maybe it's only me. Maybe you guys have all got it figured out. I might be presumptuous. Maybe you're thinking, wow, this guy, he doesn't know where he's at. Or maybe some of you are thinking, oh, that sounds a wee bit like me. I hope so. Otherwise, I'm wasting my time and I've only got three minutes left. Did you notice how fast I'm talking? (laughs) The soul garden of love and rest produces humility and gratefulness and health and hope and contentment in our lives and I need more dashes and dollops of that on a constant basis it's a phenomenal place for patterns of holiness and righteousness to grow and to thrive and they lead towards shalom the Jewish word for peace if you want to expand out the Jewish word shalom it means when everything functions as God originally intended it should that's what peace means So when Jesus says, peace be with you, or if you're in an Anglican church, they often finish a service or greet you at some stage with peace be with you. What they're really saying is when you are functioning and operating and living as God always dreamed you would, you're in a place of peace. And that's what God is wanting us to be heading towards. And anything that is detracting from that needs to be questioned. And if you don't have a peace that you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Saviour and that you know you're safe and secure in his arms, whether you're really, really naughty but love him or whether you're really, really good, if you don't know that, there's a skewed thinking going on. And uh, the talking snake really likes that. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, and I'm finishing off with just a couple of scriptures. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 This is the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Often people use it in weddings, and so 
I avoid it in weddings like the plague because it's been overdone and it loses its meaning if you say love too much. But anyway, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror, dimly. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Now we're made in the image of God. So when we're looking in the mirror dimly, are we looking at ourselves and we don't see ourselves truly as God sees us? Do you think you're seeing yourself as better than God sees you? Highly unlikely. He knows it all. Do you think you might be seeing yourself worse than God sees you? Most likely, because that's our default position. Or do you think that we're not seeing God as he really is? That it's dim and it's a skewed perspective. Probably that too, right? And it's worth rethinking. And I think my prayer for myself, I guess, and for everybody else, is that God would put us in a place where he'd say, let me teach you some more about what I'm really like, because some of you, it's a little bit skew with, and you're living in anxiety or fear, or you've had your hopes dashed in other areas, and you wouldn't be surprised if you had your hopes dashed in eternity as well. You know, look at him, and look at his nature, because what you look for is what you find. If you want to look for judgment and anger and a wrathful God and eternal punishment in the scriptures, you will find it. But if you want to look for love, and compassion and an overwhelming desire to see us do better and to be reconciled with God through Jesus Christ, you'll find that everywhere as well. You find what you look for. And sometimes because of my skewed focus, I look at the wrong things. And there are certain Bible verses that I don't like to read because they make me anxious, because what if they're true? And then I start to realize, actually, that's skewed thinking in a lot of cases. I'm looking at the wrong thing. It's not denial, but it's about balance. And final scripture, and I've just got to scroll through because my, my phone keeps going back to the introduction by default. You know how phones are. But that's the price you pay for not using paper sometimes. 1 John 4.18, and I'm finishing with this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out some fear, all fear. Perfect love. What's perfect love? Who's perfect love? Jesus. God himself. God the Father is the epitome of love. He's, it's not just an attribute. He is love. Perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. Wow. You mean I'm not going to get punished? No. I'm forgiven. I can make dumb choices and live with the consequences here and now. I may not get some steak on the plate while I wait because I've done something stupid, but the pie in the sky when I die is available. I'm not losing my pie in the sky, even if I lose some steak on the plate. You don't have to run from God for any reason. You can always run to him with full assurance that you'll be wrapped up in his loving arms, just like the prodigal son when he returned to his father. He tried to put some conditions and laws on, let me come back and I'll be your servant or whatever. And he'd even rehearsed the speech of, please, please, please give me another chance. And he tried to say that to the father. The prodigal son tried to say to the father that. And the father said, no, no, no. No, no, don't even finish the sentence. I don't want to hear any of that. My son who was lost has been found. Let's have a party. Let's have a feast. Because I'm not even going to say to you, where have you been? What have you been doing? I thought you were dead. And you're back. And nothing else matters. Now, later on in their relationship, maybe the father did sit him down and say, now, there are a few things that we can kind of iron out, but it had nothing to do with your full acceptance and God's full love of you as a person. Fear not. Don't be afraid. You're going to be okay. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author 
and the perfecter of our faith. God bless you today.